0: Dear Lord, we do thank you for the many ways in which you've blessed us. We thank you for the opportunity to give back. We pray that you would use this, these gifts mightily for the building of your kingdom and the spread of the gospel. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please remain standing as we welcome Mike Glodo to the pulpit. And you're standing for the reading of the word, I presume, rather than for me, but (laughs) thank you. The uh, the reading of scripture this morning comes from Titus, the second chapter. I'll be reading verses 11 through uh, 14. Titus, the second chapter, verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people This is the word of God. Let's ask God the Spirit's aid as we hear that word. Pray with me. O oh Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your law. Uh, give faith to our hearts and quicken our hands and our feet that we are not just hearers of this word, but doers as well. And help me to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. In all these things we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I have a guest with me this morning. My daughter, Rachel, has made the trip with me from Orlando. She works for Yale School of Music and has come for a little visit with uh, the family, sending brother off to start a spring semester in a a few hours. Um, For the rest of us, 349 days till Christmas. (laughs) And I was trying to figure out how many shopping days till Christmas, but... It's the same, right, anymore uh, because uh, no one's closed except Chick-fil-A on Sundays. Wouldn't that be a bleak life to finish all the stress and the, the hectic activity of Christmas only to wake up on the 26th of December and say, got to do it all over again. I mean, there are wonderful things about Christmas, aren't there, but, but uh, it's a busy time and, and if you get caught up in all the the, the bad parts you know it can be a really stressful time, and it can be a lonely time for people and um, and uh, and so uh, we we some sometimes are glad to have a break from Christmas once Christmas is over but there there's actually a more hopeful a more optimistic uh, outlook on living between christmases and that that outlook that hopeful outlook that purposeful outlook is the one we read about in the text of Scripture uh, from Titus chapter 2. If you can call the incarnation, the birth of Jesus Christ, as the first Christmas, and then if you'll grant me poetic license to call His second coming the final Christmas, you know, we really do live between Christmases. And this text from Scripture this morning is going to teach us what what kind of Way we're given to live between Christmases so that we have a life of purpose and hope. And to illustrate that, I'll mention a a, a wonderful engineering and transportation accomplishment back near where I grew up. Just a little north of St. Louis is the town of Alton, Illinois. Probably some of you have been there, maybe some of you are even from that part of the country. And Uh, Not too many years ago, uh, there was a bridge built there called the Clark Bridge, named after uh, the the Clark of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. It's very near to where they set out on on their um, westward journey to to find a a passage across uh, North America. Uh, But it's also called by some a super bridge. And the reason it's called a super bridge is let me just give you a couple of, of details about it. Uh, There are two towers for this whole bridge. Now, the the whole bridge itself is is nearly a half mile from ramp to ramp, and two towers to support all that. And those two towers uh, go 250 feet above the river uh, surface. And because of that height, uh, the deck itself that you drive along, and if you've driven along it, you've experienced this, the deck itself peaks out at 150 feet over the the Mississippi, what is North America's greatest river. And there were so many wonderful things this this bridge did. I used to drive this bridge once in a while when I worked as a CPA in St. Louis. I had clients that way. And I remember the white-knuckle drive because oncoming traffic was on the same road surface as, as me, and, uh, and the, the, the climb was steep, and, and the riverboat pilots had as, had as much terror about it as anybody because it had many pilings, and river traffic often hit it. So they, they built this super bridge. In fact, some of you have may have seen the Nova special on PBS where they talked about the building of this majestic, glorious, and technological marvel of a bridge. Well, that's not a bad picture of what Paul is saying here to Titus. Because Paul is saying there are two towers between which we are to live our lives. The coming of Christ and His coming again. And because of these two towers between which we are to live all of life, uh, our life takes on a certain quality and a purpose and a hopefulness. So let's, let's look at how Paul describes that for us so we can figure out the, from a hopeful's point of view how we can live between Christmas Christmases, and have hope and purpose in life that otherwise we will not have. Uh, you can really track this with the three participles, and participles, kids, or what forms of... How can you tell a participle in your, in your uh, English grammar? It's a, they're ING words, okay? So the three ING words here that tell us about how to live between Christmases. And the first one is the word TRAINING. And training is really the first tower of the bridge that Paul is presenting here because it tells us in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. I'm sorry, bringing is the first I-N-G word. I was a trick to see if anybody was paying attention. (laughs) For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This is a reference, of course, to the incarnation, that God, the second person of the Godhead, took to himself a human nature, was perfectly joined, in, in, uh, eternally joined to a human nature, though not uh, commingling those natures, he was fully God and fully man. And by doing so, Jesus Christ brought salvation. He lived a perfect life. He kept God's commands so that he could truly be declared a righteous one. And he freely grants that righteousness to those who would trust in his life and also in his death, because he died for sin. Uh, Mary was told, "This you shall call this child's name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so this is the first tower in the bridge of the Christian life. This is the first Christmas, because it tells us that in the coming of Jesus Christ, at the first Christmas, we have brought, been brought salvation, and this has implications for us. Uh, We're freed from our debt to God because Christ has paid for our sins. We are freed from the claims of others over our sins because if God is for us, who can be against us? Uh, We are delivered from self-accusation for there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we begin to see not only in the bringing of salvation by Jesus, at His first coming, uh, there's not only a, a legal freedom, but there's an experiential freedom that we, we begin to live differently. We believe the past is the past with God and that, uh, and that there is a forgiveness with, with, uh, with, with God, as the psalm that we heard this morning in the Assurance of Pardon tells us. There's a new record, a new beginning. And not only in the bringing of salvation that the first Christmas brought us uh, is there is there freedom from sin, but there's a new life because Christ didn't just come to die for sin, but He rose for our life. And so the new heavens and earth, which will one day be revealed, actually begins on Easter morning where the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn from the dead is raised from the dead. And if the Spirit that raised Him from the dead lives in us, it will give life to our mortal bodies as well. And so he says, Paul here is, is speaking of all that Christ accomplished. Not simply dying for sin, although that's a big part of it, but it's, it's rising for our life, raising, uh, uh, being raised up for our life. And that's the first tower of this bridge of the Christian life. But then Paul speaks of the second tower, which is in the word in verse 13 of waiting. That we are to live a certain kind of life waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, as Jesus said, uh, or as the angel said to, uh, to, uh, to the disciples, as you saw him depart, so you shall see him return. That Jesus promised that He would come again. He came once for salvation, He will come again for judgment. You know, this is the hope of Psalm 2, isn't it? That those who scoff, the rulers of the nations who scoff at God as the cosmic universal king of all creation, those who scoff at Him and scoff at His anointed Son, uh, that Son will rule them with a scepter of iron. And they best kiss the son, lest he become angry. You know, good news as we talked about a few weeks ago. The good news is not good news for everybody. And uh, and the, and the coming of Christ again is the is the confident hope of those who cry out, "How long, O Lord?" When we uh, when we notice the things that w- w- were prayed for in the pastoral prayer this morning, that. You know, things aren't right in this world. Um, not only the civil magistrate, but our neighbor <laughs> doesn't respect righteousness and doesn't tell truth and, 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 and doesn't do things according to the, the revealed will of God and God's character and His people uh, fall under that burden. Uh, the, the, the wicked prosper, the psalmist in 73 is preoccupied with. Or uh, in Psalm 123, the, the the hand of a servant to his master is because he is mocked day and night by the enemies of God. This is our hope, that Christ will come again, that Christ is coming again. He will set all things right. But not only is our hope for justice, it's our hope for life. Because as Christ is raised from the dead, therefore by faith in Him, those who trusted in Him, will be raised with Him. You know, many of you have experienced this, uh, as, as life has, has, has uh, like an ever-flowing stream, has uh, borne you uh, farther along in life. And, you know, my, uh, I think I shared with you a few weeks ago, we, I buried my mother a year and a half ago. You know, she was 97 when she died, so she would spent about 20 years reading obituaries of people younger than she you know, the, the psalmist says, teach me to remember my days, right? That I may learn a heart of wisdom. And uh, uh, I've ex- experienced this more times than just with my mother's uh, burial. I've experienced this at a pastor. When you stand by an open hole in the ground and call upon people to hope, to hope in God, it's a gut check. It's rubber meets the road. Faith. Do we believe in the resurrection? as the hope of the Christian. That because Christ was raised, we will be raised. So it's not just final judgment, it's not just ultimate justice, it's not even just healing from the brokenness, the physical, the psychological, and, and other aspects of brokenness of sin, but it's that we will be raised to life. I, uh, I'm in what's called a targeted investment fund. That's where my retirement's in. And the idea of a targeted fund is they know exactly how old you are because you tell them, and they, they time the investment mix so it gets right to the right point about the time you retire. But you see, that's a really bad strategy for planning a life. It's a good retirement strategy, but it's a bad life strategy because the hope of the resurrection should work its way all the way back to our present moment, not just so that we time our hope in the resurrection And the second coming of Christ, when we think it might be relevant, because Paul is saying it's relevant for every moment of Christian living. These are the two towers of Christian living, Paul says. The tower of the first Christmas, the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ, and the tower of His blessed appearing again. I haven't mentioned the bridge in uh, in Alton for a few minutes, but... One thing that makes this bridge really remarkable is you know, a normal suspension bridge has two parallel sets of cables to hold up the bridge. Well, what's so aesthetically beautiful about this bridge is the cables come together in the two towers and they cross to the next tower and then they spread again. It, and the effect of it is, and you can go home and Google this and look at the photos that you can find on the internet the The effect of it is that the eye is drawn to these great towers because everything these lines, these beautiful lines of these cables all feed toward it, and that would be wonderful that would be wonderful if those two towers were were monuments, and quite honestly, we often live as Christians as if The first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ are aesthetic monuments. But Paul gives a third, a third participle that tells us about the bridge itself. And that is found in the word training in verse 12. Because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Grace has appeared to train us. And this is so contrary to the way people maybe popularly view Christianity. They see the grace of God as a get out of jail, get out of jail card. But, see, the grace of God has appeared to train us, to teach us. What? To teach us what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace of God has appeared to sever our relationship to sin and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There's a a no. The grace of God teaches us to say no. And the grace of God teaches us to say yes to self-controlled, upright, and godly lives because we live with a new appetite because we've been made new we live with a new orientation because we belong to another society we belong to another king and 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 we are not only empowered but given affections by which to live like the grace of god would cause us to live And as a result, the end of the passage I read tells us that He gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. That is, the grace of God appeared to train us to be God's peculiar people. That's the old King James translation of the word here. And it goes back to the Old Testament. it's in Exodus 19, God called Israel his peculiar people. Now unfortunately, the peculiarity of God's people has often had to do more with strangeness than distinctiveness. But that word here means to live as a people uh, who exhibit whose God they, uh, whose, whose people they are. They, are, uh, they are. they live as a people who whose lives point toward whose they are. Uh, Peter uses this same expression in 1 Peter chapter 2. We are, a holy, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Same word there. So that we declare the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. You, you see, we are a people for praise. And we are people for praise not only in our public worship, but we are people for praise because the grace of God is to train us to live in a different relationship toward the world. And it's not simply a, 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 these virtues by themselves, uh, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. But these are actually counter-virtues to the dis-virtues of, back up in chapter 1. Uh, this is just a little side note, but in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul says... Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy guttons. Now, you might be thinking, Paul probably not trying to reach the Cretans at that point, is he? But you see, uh, t- where what, what, Titus is on Crete, uh, Cretan culture uh, valued trickery and deception as a cultural virtue. And sort of like a, a, a whole island of Peter Rabbits. <laughs> Uh, that, that, that when a people is, are, are few and, and, uh, and, and, and they're surrounded by mighty nations, you know, there are, there are different ways of making your way in the world. And uh, so the Cretans had a, had a tomb for Zeus in Crete, Zeus being the chief god of the Greek pantheon. It was a joke. They didn't really think Zeus was buried there, but it was their, it was their tongue-in-cheekness. It was their, it was their uh, frivolity and their... Um, their their reliance upon sleight of hand and deception as a culture. So Paul is saying something more to Timothy here. He's not just saying be self-controlled, upright, and godly. He's saying live as a counterculture. Live differently than the world in which you live. After all, a bridge isn't just a monument, but a bridge is for going places. The bridge is for traveling on. And if it were just the first and the second coming of Jesus that were, were, were things we, 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 we worshipped about and we, we saw as beautiful and wonderful things, but it never got us anywhere, we would not be learning the grace of God. But the grace of God has appeared to teach us, to train us, so that we are a people who live to give God a good reputation. I've been involved uh, with my own denomination, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. I've been involved in writing a paper on human sexuality that will become a position paper for our denomination. And one of the things of which we become intensely aware as we've listened to authorities and we've researched and we've listened to the church and we've tried to listen to those outside the church one of the greatest enemies of the Christian faith in terms of human sexuality is the church because we've been very selective about what things upset us. And so uh, our selective immorality makes us appear to be hypocrites. So the state of marriage within the Christian church doesn't speak well for what we say about marriage from Scripture, you see. Or uh, how we enter the political arena. You know, what, what, How should a Christian enter, enter civil discourse? Well, a Christian should enter it civilly, and probably most do. But unfortunately, sometimes the most noticeable voices in the public arena are the most strident and critical. And when a Christian speaks this way, that's what the world thinks Christians are like. And so Paul is is issuing an appeal here that, that we live as befits our king so that people will know who is our king. And it's not just the virtues in and of themselves in the absolute, but it's the virtues in service of glorifying the God who made His grace appear in His Son. There was a letter written in the 2nd century describing this outlook for Christians. The letter, the Epistle of Diognetus, as it was called. And here what it, here's what it says about this, this way of life. It says, of uh, uh, speaking of Christians, Yet while living in every city and following the local customs, both in clothing and food, they show forth the wonderful and admittedly strange character of the constitution of their own citizenship. They dwell in their own fatherlands, but as if immigrants in them, living as if they belong to a better country, a better city. He says, they, dwell, they, they share all things as citizens and suffer all things as strangers. Every foreign country is their fatherland because they're Christians in every country. And every fatherland is a foreign country because they are citizens of a better country, you see. They marry as all men, they bear children, but they do not expose their offspring. In other words, they don't throw away their children. They keep them, they nurture them, they, they raise them. They offer free hospitality, but guard their purity. They pass their time upon earth, but they have their citizenship in heaven. They obey the appointed laws and they surpass the laws in their own lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all men. They are unknown and they are condemned. They are put to death and they gain life. They are poor and make many rich. They lack all things and have all things in abundance. You see, that's the vision that Paul is putting forth here to say that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation and waiting for the blessed hope, but also training us to live lives that will be to the praise of God. And glory of God. If you took French in uh, high school, you may have learned a little ditty, a little song, a poem. In Avignon in France, uh, there was at one time a glorious and ornate bridge that was begun. But the city ran out of money, and every time they had a little more money, they would continue to build. But finally, the city of Avignon gave up building the bridge. And they just declared it a dance floor. (laughs) And so they have parties and concerts and so forth. But it only goes halfway across the river. And so you might have learned the little French nursery rhyme, if you will. There is a bridge in Avignon, which is only good for dancing. But you see, Paul says the Christian faith is a fully built bridge. It is one that proceeds out of... Christ's first coming to secure our salvation to give us all things in Christ by faith the grace of God appeared and it is a grace of God that stretches forward into eternity future because the end of this world is not the end of his reign it is simply the beginning and Because of those two great towers, there is a well-built bridge to to live the Christian life, to, to live for God, to deny the things of this world so that the grace of God shines in us and makes its appeal to the nations, those around us. This meal which we are about to take reminds us of all three of these things. Because in it, we remember on the night that he was betrayed, how he broke bread and poured the cup and then gave his life as the bread and the cup for the world on the cross. It reminds us of his coming again because we are to, every time we celebrate this feast, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again but it is also a meal which sustains us, it feeds us, it strengthens us. See, the Lord's Supper is not a funeral, it's a feast. We come with sorrow for our sin, but we come with mouths wide open to be nourished on the promises of God. His grace that comes to us by faith in taking the cup and the bread. And so as we prepare ourselves for Holy Communion this morning, Let's commit ourselves, the beginning of a new year, to live between Christmases, but not 2015 and 2016, but the first and the final Christmases, to live as a people for His own glory, as a special treasure of God, to exhibit His praise to the nations. Let's pray together.